Welcome to the Valaran Perspective. We explore working, leading, and finding value in an uncertain world. I'm Aaron Smith. I'm Ben Carsage. Welcome, everybody. Let's get rolling. Welcome back to the Valaran Perspective, everybody. Uh, today, um, we have kind of a unique setup in that um, I have had the pleasure to get my very good friend for many, many years, uh, Darko Vukovic, on the show. Um, he is, uh, I'm going to gush about him a little bit just to kick things off and then I'll, uh, I'll kick things over to him to let him tell us about his background. But like, he's, uh, probably one of the single best product managers I've ever met in the industry. And I absolutely love talking to him about product things and organizational things because the way his brain works, uh, he just sees things from a completely different perspective than many people I know. And I really always enjoy hearing his takes. And I think that hopefully there's a lot um, that uh, everyone can learn from um, him being around today. And I, I know that I tend to always learn something every time I talk to him. So um, thanks for joining us, Darko. I really appreciate you making the time. Yeah, happy to be here. Good to see both of you again. Yeah. Uh, tell us a little bit about your background um, as we kick things off, because you've been all over doing all kinds of things for many years now. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess I'll go back to um, starting off college. Um, initially, I wanted to do music composition. Uh, I really loved that in high school. And, um, you know, my dream was to go off to Hollywood and do movie scores for, for movies. And um, Basically, as I got to college and started taking music courses and meeting people in the industry, I, I kind of realized there was more of a passion for me than it is a, uh, a career. Um, so I ended up pivoting uh, to engineering. Um, I always loved transportation systems and structures and things of that sort. So I figured, hey, it sounds like civil engineering, maybe with a focus on transportation or structural would be great. Um, so I got an internship in the Orange County Transportation Authority to start getting my feet wet to see what that process looks like. And um, a couple of things that just really threw me off immediately was one, the pace at how slowly uh, these projects happen. Mm -hmm. Two, the fact that they're all generally publicly funded. Um, and so there's a lot of politics involved. And so you, you know, you, many times you don't even get the project that makes the most sense. You get something that, um, you know, appeals to people's constituencies and, you know, there's a, there's a lot of things involved. Um, so it didn't feel very exciting um, when I actually started to engage in it. So I ended up pivoting to electrical engineering um, and I wanted to focus on robotics. And so I did an internship at USC in the uh, robotics lab and uh, got to see kind of how uh, robots are coded and, and built and all the different pieces working together, mechanical, electrical, um, computer science, et cetera. And towards the end of it, I, I really saw that software was A, the fastest moving, most exciting component. And then B, it's actually the industry that is kind of having the biggest investment, biggest amount of innovation, um, super you know, private. So a lot of freedom, uh, not a lot of red tape. So I ended up pivoting my last year of college to software development. Um, I, I stayed as an EE because I couldn't afford a fifth year at USC, but I ended up doing emphasis in computer architecture. So to get my hands and feet as wet as possible. Um, and then, you know, during the summer of between my junior and senior year, um, I interviewed at Microsoft and that interview 
process uh, for an internship, which actually happened while I was still in school in junior year. Um, I came there with the intention of interviewing for a software development role. And the first thing the person interviewing me said was, hey, you know, we've got these three different roles. We have program management, software development, and software you know, test automation. Uh, which of these do you want to interview for? And I said, tell me more about this program management. Like, what does this person do? And they said, oh, it's, you know, basically a role. You're responsible for making sure projects happen. You're kind of the glue. It's your job to understand the, you know, business effects, the customers, the needs of the customers, et cetera. Um, so I was like, wow, that sounds super interesting. So I interviewed for that, uh, did really well, got an internship, went there. Um, I landed in enterprise for a couple of reasons. Uh, I think number one, it, and maybe this is me retroactively making up the story, but it felt like all the best teams, you know, like Windows, Office, um, you know, the you know, Windows Server, et cetera, they got their first picks. And those were the, you know, people from MIT's and Harvard's and like all the just, you know, top best talent. Mm. Um, but I was, you know, I was good enough to make the cut. So I ended up in a, in a system that basically was a, it was a software for IT departments to better manage, you know, their various processes, assets, uh, help people out, et cetera. So that's how I got involved in enterprise. And at first it was like, okay, I'll just do this for a little bit. I'll learn and then I'll pivot, right? And so I, I, it was always an aim of mine to pivot to something more sexy, something more consumer focused, um, which I did. And that's how I met you guys uh, working at Riot. Um, but in the back of my head, I think a lot of the initial impressions of the culture stuck. And I think that's ultimately why I ended up circling back to go work in enterprise. And I can dig into that more, but so then after Microsoft, I worked at Riot and then I worked at Barnes & Noble, um, you know, again with Aaron. Um, after that, I went to MuleSoft, which ended up being a very successful integration company, learned a lot there. Uh, I think that was the first time when I truly started to understand uh, all the facets of software development. So, or I should say on the software stack and all the facets of cloud infrastructure and how it all plays together. Um, went on to go work at Oracle, where I um, led the creation of an API management product, um, and then came over to Google when a lot of the Oracle leadership came over and uh, invited me over. So that's kind of a, a quick overview, and I'm happy to dig into all aspects of that as we go. Yeah, so there has been this like journey of the evolution of your role and fine-tuning it and getting into more of the nuance that's landed you in this place where you're like, I am a product manager. Like what, what are the key points in that journey? And like, what are the learnings and wisdom that you collected along the way that got you to where you're just like product is my thing? Yeah. So I think, um, kind of the best analogy I can think of is I think it was Michelangelo, right. That made David the, the statue. And I, I don't know if this is a true story or not, but when they asked him, you know, how did you, how did you make David? He said, well, I started with a block of marble and I just cut away all the parts that weren't David. Um, and so I, I thought that was like, like just a really kind of brilliant way to put it. Um, so with product management, I started off with an attitude of saying, like, I'll do anything. Like, cause you know, and it's highly related to the fact that it's like early in your career, you really don't know anything. Like if you, 
If you believe that you're graduating college equipped to do anything meaningful at a software development company, I think you're misguided. Um, so that's like, that's like, that's the ticket to enter, right? Um, and so then once you enter, I think you should have an attitude of I'll do anything because you want to have a good full understanding of everything that's happening across all the different roles, how it all plays together and how it all comes together to become a product, a successful business. And that's especially important for product managers, but I would say that's true for anybody. And then over time, I started to, you know, obviously first you delegate the stuff that somebody does better than you. Then you start to delegate away the stuff that's, you know, busy work. Then you start to delegate away stuff that, you know, is unrelated or poorly timed. Um, and so eventually, like, if you just keep going and, and the focus I had in my mind was, we need to make sure that what we expend energy on has a direct effect on our customers or users or both. And it has the intended consequences for them for which they're purchasing our product. Um, and so that's ultimately what product management is. If you were to measure yourself against that directly, that's how you can decide if what you're doing actually matters or doesn't. Um, and if you just, you know, if you lose sight of that as a product manager, there's plenty of people that want to suck you into all kinds of useless activity. Um, and the only saving grace you have is that determination to only focus on the making sure the customer gets the intended consequences of using your product. Hmm. What does replace that? I'm, I'm curious in, in product management organizations you've been in, you know, that was a very clear statement you just made. It goes away sometimes is almost implied in what you said. What fills the void? So I think what fills the void is a manifestation of, I want to say some form of either ego or insecurity. Um, mm. And the way it manifests itself is, as kind of like busy work. But, you know, when, when people say busy work, people just kind of imagine somebody like, you know, stapling papers or like, you know, packing and unpacking boxes. Like it's, and I, don't, I don't mean like that. Like, I mean like product related busy work. So for example, you can spend a tremendous amount of time talking about strategy without making any progress towards strategy. You can make a tremendous amount of time talking to customers without making sure that you're getting the information you want from them. Uh, you can make a tremendous amount of time um, educating people on what your product does and why it's important. Um, not realizing that there's somebody, you know, five feet away from you who could do that education just fine. So it's, it's I think um, what I see most often is people that they feel like they are, they have to do the work instead of feeling like the work needs to get done. Mm. And a lot of people that feel like, you know, uh, they're by, by virtue of it being in their job description, like it's all fair game and they don't assign a good sense of like timing to it. So like, for example, if your next six months are focused on adoption, then there's really no point in hypothetically coming up with additional capabilities, right? So you could be sitting there writing a specification 
for a capability that should be added to your product that's built on an assumption that people are going to want that. So then if somebody were to observe you, they'd say, wow, look at you know, this person. They're just cranking out PRDs left and right. And it was the best written PRD I've seen, right? But if you dig into it and you find out that it's like the engineering team won't have time to work on it in the next six months, or that that functionality is not top of mind for your customers, or that you, know, you don't actually have the means or the funding to implement it, it's like, what's the point? You know, so I would say busy yeah. work that manifests itself as the appropriate work, but it's not going to manifest itself as the effect that you're looking for. So there, there's something really, really interesting here that I want to dig into, because to me, you're you're pulling on and touching on the essence of what makes a very talented product manager, in my view, separate themselves from the pack of average product managers. And also I think uh, exemplifies a particular leadership quality. And that leadership quality I would define as, I would broadly paraphrase a lot of what you're talking about is like, what does it mean to understand what is valuable and then to like pull out the value, like the signal from the noise, right? There's so much noise all the time. How do you pull out the signal? So I, I guess to ask you what is probably a horrible question, but like, how the hell do you pull out the signal? Like, what are the skills or is it like just who you are as a person? Because I'm going to be honest, like when I run into really talented product leads in in our industry, they almost seem like wizards or magicians to me a little bit. You know what I mean? Like, so I'm, I'm wondering, like, what is it that you've learned that makes you go like that helps you just crisply and cleanly pull the value out and understand what the value actually is. Right. Right. Um, I would say there's a lot of stuff that can corrupt you from being able to do it. And then you're still not done. Right. Then there's still more work to be done. Um, let's start with some of the easy stuff. Like if you show up to work concerned about like your next promotion, like in my opinion, you're already done. Like, you've already corrupted your mental orientation so much that you're not even going to see the truth. Um, and so, like, like it's an almost like an instant dismissal in my mind when I notice that somebody's like preoccupied with something like that. Gone. Um, if you come into work and you don't ground yourself to like, what's the true situation? Like, you know. It's simple questions like how many people do we have to work on this? What skill sets do they have? What's their state of mind? Are they excited? Um, are we, um, you know, do we have happy customers, right? Do our customers accomplish what we hope they can accomplish with our products? Like if you don't ground yourself in what the truth is and you're, you know, talking about competitors, you're talking about analyst reports, you're talking about, you know, did you see that this company raised this much money and, you know, they, you know, it's like, and you're just kind of living in this, uh, it's almost like, uh, I don't know what the right terminology is for it, but it's like, it's like the, you know, like in Hollywood, you have celebrities and you're more concerned about like, what are the celebrities doing? Where are they going? Who's hanging out with who? And it's like, you're not focused on the actual product, which is, you know, in that case, like, how do you great, create a great film? Um, and so same idea in the software industry, like I see that parallel a lot where people are more kind of like 
entertained by the periphery of what's happening. And that's mm. where their head's at. Then I'm like, you know, maybe there's room for that in like marketing. Maybe there's room for that in sales. Like there's, you know, there's definitely a, a chess match happening between you and your competitors. But as a product manager responsible for creating the product, like if that's what you're caught up with, like you're done in my book too. Like there's no chance you're going to be able to, you know, see it. There's almost like a trap we fall in where we end up focusing on all the human systems that we built on top of the product with the, where the original intention was to ship great products. But then it's like the focus ends up being on the system itself and we forget why we're there more or less. For sure. and I, I think, I think that's a very natural thing that happens to all of us to some, in, in some respect. There's yeah. also, there's also a external versus internal idea there, right? Like someone who's focused entirely on my next promotion is really trying to, there, there's an external frame that they're trying to like get out of, um, or get something out of perhaps. Uh, and even the person who's watching the celebrities, it's like, what's out there. And what you actually said was very much what's in here. What is our product? Who is our customer? What are they getting out of it? What's our team? Um, and sort of shutting down you know, Aaron, you said signal to noise, recognizing that a lot of the rest is just noise and that the signal is like, like what's real, what's real about our product right now. Absolutely. Yeah. And you want to, you want to be able to participate in all that, but it's like, you can't exist in it is what I'm trying to say. Um, yeah. and, and additionally to that, like another one is like, if you're following like orders or commands, and, and you're grounding yourself in like, well, you know, our VP said we need to complete this by Friday. Or, you know, when we reviewed this with our president two months ago, he stressed that this feature is super important, right? Like if you're existing in like a management chain um, mm -hmm. and you're like, you're done too. Like there's no way, because it's like these guys, think of it as like, you have 10 hours to focus on this and they have like 15 minutes and so this idea that they're going to come with, to a better conclusion than you are about your own product area is just, is bizarre in my mind. So like, it's like that flow of information needs to get inverted and it's like, you need to be educating them on what's going on and what we should do and what you need from them. Not like following orders that they, you know, came up with or, you know, and many, what's even worse is many times they like, they're just trying to brainstorm with you. And it's like mm -hmm. the PMs are just like taking it literally. Like, and it's like, yeah. no, 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 like he never said do that. He just was like asking a question, like, where'd you like, hold on. So, so I'd say like, those are probably the top three traps that you can fall in. So assuming you haven't fallen in those things, going back to Aaron's question and assuming that like your focus is really on the customer and you say, Hey, number one, and this is a tough one. Cause it's like, if you get a people pleaser in the product role, that's also extremely dangerous. You need a high degree of um, unagreeableness maybe, or like, you know, yeah. reality. I don't know what to call it, but it's like, you have to also be able to know who the right customers are and who the right customers are not. Mm. And many times people just want to like, you know, they're like, oh, this guy from this company, you know, he said this would be super important. And it's like, yeah, but like, like why are you weighing it? Why are you weighing his opinion like versus, you know, somebody else who like also said it. So it's like having an understanding of who your true customers are. And so, you know, in gaming, it would be like, we're your true players in, you know, in enterprise. It's like, 
who are the architects, who's figuring out what software stack they're going to use to accomplish their goals mm-hmm. um, and take and weighing their opinion very heavily. Um, and then there's a whole model that shows up there like, who is the decision maker? Who pays for it? Who uses it? Right. It's like, and you know, some of that might even apply in video games too. It's like maybe the person playing is not the person who chose the game and maybe mm-hmm. the person, and they're not the person who pays for the game. Right. So it's like mm-hmm. understanding that there's different audiences within your customer base and that you have to be very careful about weighing what they're saying in accordance to what their role is in the system. Yeah. I love that. Uh, that's a huge one. And then beyond that, it's like you, you have to be, you have to take that and you have to also understand that you are building a business. And many times I, I've seen a lot of product managers kind of fall in the trap of like only thinking about product or technology and forgetting that they're part of a business. And so mm-hmm. like, what are your business goals? Right? Like, and generally it's some form of revenue or engagement or, you know, brand, like there's something we're after here with this product. Um, you know, like for example, many of the products I work on, um, at Google, our goal is to make Google cloud more successful. And so that could mean that, you know, our job is to either, let's say, deal with a competitive disadvantage that we have, or potentially introduce a revenue stream or potentially introduce a way to bridge our cloud with other clouds so that customers of other clouds could migrate to our cloud, right? So there's, there's something that you're doing for the business. And if you're not like astutely aware of what your role is in the business, it's hard to orient your product to solve that purpose. And then it's hard to measure yourself against that because it's like you're just suspended in space guessing. And you can, yeah. you can have like a smashing year in revenue and fail your goal miserably because your goal wasn't to just drive, you know, growth and revenue, right? So right. There's, there's all kinds of, um, so, so, so to summarize, if you understand what your purpose is in the business, you understand who your customers are and can appropriately weight their opinion. And you're not afraid, I'd, I'd say the last crucial piece is really like, you're not afraid of, you know, to your analogy, Aaron, pulling on that string like slowly and also like just start with the little piece, right? And as you pull on more of it, you start to get a thicker and thicker rope. And then when you like fully latched onto the chain, you're like, I got it. And then you could really pull. And so it's like in the beginning, like I'll use an example. When I started the Oracle API platform project, like my first interaction with the customer existed before we even had our first UX. And our first UX revision that I showed this customer was like a day's worth of work for a UX designer. And I kid you not, it was literally a list of boxes and then a list of tabs. And I said, hey, here's the vision. We're gonna have these objects. We're gonna have these different um, pieces of information for those objects. Mm-hmm. What do you think so far? And it's like, and you know, most people would think like, what is wrong with you? Like, how could you show like boxes to a customer? You know, like you don't talk to customers till you're ready to do the grand reveal of like your, your fully built platform four years later. And it's like, it's like, no, 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 no. Like I wanted to first make sure that I'm grounded in the most 
basic of things. Um, mm. and, and I kept, I always keep my customers along for the whole journey. And, and that's, that's another way where it's like, you know, and I'd say a lot of that is pride of like, who, like, how can you, like, what is, what is the appropriate conversation to have with the customer at each point in your product life cycle? Right. And it's like early on, it's an, it's like a, you, you need to be humble and just seek to understand. And as your product matures, as it becomes, as the vision comes to life, then you could be more of like, hey, I'll present to many customers on stage and I'll knock on my competitors and I'll showcase the strengths and I'll feel super confident about it. But early on, like, you can't be confident about it. You're learning. So you need to be extremely humble and, and extremely open to, you know, hearing everything. And the way this manifests with poor product managers is they're afraid of failure. And so they try to push it off as far into the future as possible, that, that day of reckoning. Mm-hmm. Whereas I'm like, I want my day of reckoning to happen like right away. Mm-hmm. If this is a shitty idea. I want to know before I even talk to any of my team about it. Right. And it's like, so it's mm-hmm. like customer first, not just in like value of opinion, but customer first in like, who you engage with and, and, you know, ultimately, in, at least in enterprise, you want to have your customers be your partners in the development process. And many people just say that as like a fluff piece. And what it means is, Hey, I want to validate my ego against you once a quarter. <laughs> and then mm-hmm. I'm going to do all the talking and I just want you to give me the thumbs up at the end. And it's like, no, no, no like let's invert that. It's like, I'm building this for you. Like imagine yourself to be a suit designer and you have your customer in the store and it's like, let's go, let's build you that custom suit. Mm-hmm. You know, there's something really interesting. This is going back a couple minutes, but it was, it, it was, a uh, you just touched on it, but it, it put a light bulb on for me, which is the idea of incrementalism. And it reminded me of when I worked with you at BNN. And one of the things I remember, and this is actually a common thing I've seen in enterprise a lot. And I think there's the baseline of enterprise is that there's a lot of really big systems, a lot of like huge headcount teams, a lot of massively cash infused organizations that serve extremely large customer bases. So solutions, I think there's, there's a, there's a baseline set of assumptions that a lot of leaders make in enterprise, which is like the solution has to be big. It likely needs to connect with other big solutions that we use here internally to the company. I always found it fascinating. Like when I worked with you at Barnes, you had peeled off a team of like handpicked, really talented guys. And you peeled them off from the bigger system. And one of the reasons why was because, and I remember this environment, everyone else was making assumptions about what was possible because of the nature of the structure that existed. So it's like, hey, this needs to connect with the catalog in this way. And the catalog already exists. So you have to do this, you know, or it's like, well, you know, we don't have a tool for that yet. And we have a team that's supposed to build that tool. So we all need to wait until they finish that tool. There's like all these assumptions. And, you know, and there's a particular example where it was like, well, there was a, a group of guys building an analytics platform. And it was going to take forever. And you were like, I'm just going to use Google Analytics because my customers need data today. And I need data to make good decisions today. And so there, there was all the, always this comfort that you had about removing yourself from the, the red tape 
to not just to be like, oh, I don't want to deal with the politics. It wasn't that. It was you want you needed to move faster to learn and and do incremental development. And I think that like in enterprise, a lot of the time we forget about incrementalism. Like everything is these are these grandiose multi-year, mm-hmm. big bang, three hundred head projects. Like, don't show anybody the the curtain is raised at the company like yearly event, you know, and then half the people in the audience are sitting there going like, who asked for this? Like, (laughs) so I don't know. That was a little long winded. I apologize. But there's, again, something there about incrementalism I wanted to kick back to you. Like, how did you is that like how did you land there? Like, how did you how did incrementalism become like an important part of the way you view leadership and product management? Hmm. Uh, I would say. Number one, so one is um, having first started off on a project that didn't do incrementalism and it just was like a big bang, like the grand unveil. And what was even worse is like with these big projects, it's like as they start spending more and more money and they just start diffusing, eventually some, you know, some executive has a heart attack about how much this is costing the company and how little is being produced that they ultimately like put the kibosh and like request that it's like, okay, like enough screwing around, like ship it by the end of this year. And then that just triggers this like frantic Mm -hmm. scramble to like get something out the door. And that thing just like always is a disaster. Like it's, I've never (laughs) seen that process produce something valuable, right? That's almost a software development meme. I feel like I've been personally in so many of those situations (laughs) in my career. It's just crazy. And so, so I, so I knew very strongly that that's not how you do it. Um, and then when I joined Riot, like Riot was huge on agile, as you guys both know, and you guys are agile experts. Um, and the thing that really struck at me was deciding your spring sprint length. And like the idea was like, you should only decide your spring to be maximally as long as how far into the future you can see. So if you can't predict what's gonna happen in a week, like your sprint shouldn't be a week. Like if your business and and not just business, but if your organizational capacity is so poor that you literally can't see the future or, or circumstances, it might not be, I'm not saying that to fault anyone. Circumstances are such that like, you can only see a week ahead, then you should take it a day at a time. You know, if you can start seeing a month ahead, you should take it maybe two weeks at a time. So the idea being that like, there's a, there's a kind of a fog of war and you should be aware of that. And so what I always like to kind of keep in the forefront of my mind is like, well, truly how far can we see, right? And it's like, and, and nothing is, there's nothing wrong with like having ideas and preparing yourself for that fog of war unveiling. I think the expertise is there's like a there's like a, a there's a two-dimensional quadrant. So there's like honesty and like deception, and then there is like predictability and like you know unpredictability. And so like you could be in a circumstance where you're honest about your visibility and you kind of go day by day in an unpredictable way mm-hmm. where things are just gonna hit you and you're just gonna have to deal with it. But you could also start to introduce like predictability um, frameworks where you say, hey, what do we think could hit us next week? Okay, let's list them out. Hypothetically, if that hits us, what would we do about it? We would do the following. So now you're starting to build a predictability framework such that as that fog of war kind of reveals itself, you're like, ah, it turns out this was true. Okay, we have a solution ready to go. 
oh, it turns out this was true. Cancel that project, right? Like, so it, it doesn't catch you as like, you're not unprepared for it. You just didn't know until you encountered it. So mm-hmm. I think incrementalism is really kind of a mindset where you acknowledge that there's a distance you can see and then basically starting to prepare plans that, you know, have conditional statements that will take you in a different direction based on what's true. Now, I want to I want to tap on something that you said, and just to make sure that one, I understood you and also that uh, the audience doesn't get the wrong idea, because um, something you said was, hey, the, the more you can see into the future, um, the longer to some extent your your iteration length can be. Um, and is the idea there, well, the, I would disagree with the idea then that now that's a takeaway is let's try to see as far in the future as we can, so we can have a long iteration length. (laughs) Um, uh, and I'm actually curious when you've related to iteration length, I like that criteria of you certainly shouldn't be longer than you can to some extent see, um, how how do you think about that in that context of like expanding the fog of war and how does that relate to iteration length or those sorts of things? Yeah. So let's also, um, let's, let's distinguish between product iterations and Mm -hmm. engineering iterations. I don't, I don't mean to imply that engineering should set cycles that are, you know, their own, like they should set their own cycles and product should actually not interfere with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, so let's take that one aside. What I mean by is like product cycles. And what I, what I mean by that is I'll even use an, um, an example. Like sometimes if my fog of war is three months out and people ask me like, Hey, can you uh, give me a roadmap for this feature? Right. And that's like, that's the question that I think I disappoint the most people with when I answer it. <laughs> and, and it's like, so I'll give them a roadmap. I'll say, okay, well this month we're working on this feature. And as soon as we're done, our roadmap is to take that to our customers and see how it gets adopted, you know, mm-hmm. and, and get their feedback. And they're like, so it's like, they're like, yeah, yeah, but I'm looking for more something like 18 months out, you know? And I'm like, <laughs> like, what you, like, how, like, we haven't even launched the V1 and you're asking me for like, what might be a V5? Like, like, what's like, like, what is wrong with you? You know? And they're like, no, but we need to like sell the vision. Right. And it's like, okay, I can, I can explain the vision, but that vision doesn't manifest itself as like an 18 month, you know, picture with like boxes of like, what's going to happen. It's like, that's a plan, right? I don't have a plan for 18 months out. Mm. And so what I found is like, at first they used to have a hard time with that because it's like, well, you know, we promised the customer a roadmap, you know, and I, I would go into these meetings extremely nervous. Like, well, I don't have a roadmap and I I'm even guilty of like, putting together a sham roadmap. And I realized it's like, what kind of a low integrity move is that to like, just throw in a bunch of hypotheticals and like, and then immediately be like, but by the way, like this might change in three months. So don't, don't take this at all. Darko, I'm really disappointed in you. I've never in my entire career in software development heard of a product manager putting together a sham roadmap just to make their senior stakeholders <laughs> feel better about things. I'm ashamed of you, sir. <laughs> As you you actually referenced that earlier, honesty, dishonesty, predictability, unpredictability. Yeah, exactly. I love that, so that by the way. Like, I uh, want to write that down. That, that was deserves like, yeah. like an that article, like man. Low honesty, like high yeah. predictability yeah. is like <laughs> sham roadmap that doesn't like mean anything. Um, yeah. So then I said, but that's not what they want. What they want 
is a vision. Like what they want to hear is like, where are you guys trying to take this product in the next 18 months? And a vision can be explained in many ways. And usually I like to do it verbally as a story, but that's not, you know, there's no right way to explain the vision. But as long as you can answer the question of like, what is the purpose of this product? And what is it if I use it, you know, as intended, what am I going to get out of it as a consumer of mm-hmm. this product? That's that's the vision. Yeah. And, well, that's that's actually what vision is. Right. And 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 again, that a takeaway that I have from that story, that anecdote, is um, again we we talked about this earlier about this idea of leaning into the organizational structure and not necessarily questioning does this structure or does this process or does this instinct that I have or this thing I'm asking for actually lead to value? Or is it something, you use the term ego. I love that term because I think we're all uh, at risk of this every day, which is like, what's the thing that makes me feel good right now versus what's the thing that's actually valuable for the business? Mm-hmm. And, and, and a lot of our conversation has been about like, how do you, pull those two things apart so you can see clearly. And again, like I, I, I see a lot of leaders do this in software where it's like, there's something there, the, the roadmap or the, the bars, the Gantt chart, it's a, it's a crutch. It's a psychological crutch because like, Mm -hmm. I feel accountable to know, to project my knowledge past the fog of war. Like you say, Darko, the fog of war is two months. And you give a lot of great evidence as to why it's two months. And it, from our perspective, I think this is so funny. It's foolish to think that you can plan past two months because when we have made plans past two months, they're always wrong. Right. You know, there's, there's an empirical evidence collecting process here. But at the same time, I'm the senior leader. I've got a meeting with the VP or I've got a meeting with the CEO. He wants to know what we're doing 10 months from now. And I... Be, if I have a choice between explaining to him the nuance of how we are delivering value versus just making a document that he can look at and give me a thumbs up, oh man, am I really tempted towards B, <laughs> yeah, you know? And like, and I just, I don't want to like beat this to death, but like, I think one of the reasons I love talking to you about this stuff is because these behaviors and the psychology behind it actually end up dictating a lot of mm-hmm. how we approach the development process. And, you know, and for, for anyone listening to this, I would just say like, keep that stuff in mind because those things are likely to influence your outcomes far more than like the technique that you're using to approach the individual things, you know, Mm -hmm. there's a thing that popped from my name when you were talking, and I think Darko, this relates as well. It's that, that Simon Sinek, like start with why, and that's actually your answer to some extent to that question. Because the 18-month roadmap is a what question. <laughs> what, are, what and how yeah. are you going to get build this thing? And your, your argument is, no, what you actually want to know is the why. And right. I can today tell you with much more accuracy what I think my 18-month why is. Mm-hmm. Um, but the what and the how, yeah, past two months, I don't know. Um, however... If I can be compelling in my articulation of the why, you walk away satisfied. And that's important because it actually means that I didn't have to give you a sham roadmap. And I also didn't have to go into a giant explanation of why I don't know in 18 months. I basically sidestep your question. Right. Right. Um, no, and it's it, to, to like the worst part, I would say, is that if it was a matter of just getting you the, you know, the thumbs up from the 
customer or the executive, like Aaron was saying, that would like that would almost be palpable. Like you could live with that, right? It's like you'd feel dirty at the end of it, but you can live with it. <laughs> what more often happens than that is then the senior management that pushed for that roadmap will be like, now let's present it to the team. And you're like, no, no, no. This was like a sham we put together to just like <laughs> placate. Like, this is not the real roadmap. They're like, no, 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 no. Like, this is good. Like, the president's on board. Like, we should do this. And so now you're like, now you're presenting this to customers and you're getting like, you're, you're implicitly creating commitments, right? Yeah. And now you're presenting yeah. this to the team and they, like, they start to believe like, okay, good. We got a plan. Like, now let's just execute. And so you're almost like committing yourself to this same, you know, crap that you created basically for like for no reason and that's and and what's worse about it is all along the way you'll be getting positive signals you got the thumbs up Mm. for the president you got the team fucking excited you got the customers that are like i need this and i need that and it's like now like those are all good signals like they they'll lead you to believe that it's like we're on good track now and all you did was just like punt the day of reckoning and it's like what's even worse is if your goal is to get promoted and your company has a culture of promoting you know execution it's like by the time this thing even like manifests itself like you could already get your promotion and be on to like something else by then so it's it's just like a disaster that happens over and over for all these like (laughs) passing the ticking time bomb to the guy who comes after you is always a good uh corporate strategy but here's the worst part like if you quit and the guy behind you comes in, he could be like, no, 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 guys, like, this is not it. This new sham roadmap is it. And everyone will be like, <laughs> we knew the last guy didn't get it. Like, this is it. And so it's just like, it's this perpetual, like, just, I don't even know what to call but it. The like, low honesty, like, it's a lo- low honesty on your matrix. Yeah. Perpetual exactly. low it's honesty. Just, yeah. Well, I, I love too that call out that um, what, and I feel like this is one of the reasons even not on the product side, but on the engineering side, maybe across the board, when people come in and ask for certainty, there's this deep hesitation sometimes around it. Like they want a plan laid out and it's because yes, the plan comes back. It's like, okay, well I created you a guesstimate of when we think things might happen. And I, here's my 7,000 caveats to try to help you understand. And then two days later, I walk into the big company meeting and you're presenting my plan to the whole company and everybody's applauding. And my caveated to death thing that is probably not going to go this way just became an expectation mm-hmm. to follow. And to your, and I love the point you made, which is as the leader in that, even worse is that if you just play along, you are perceived as successful. Yep. As long as you just keep the boxes, yep, then we got to this box. We're a little behind because external reason, but you know, like, but we're still look at us, you know, clipping through boxes and, and what's lost actually is the why Mm -hmm. is the vision because we get stuck and like, it becomes less, if I have an 18 month roadmap of things I'm supposed to do and when suddenly it's way less important for, as you described to stay close to the customer. Mm Mm-hmm. Or, just or, mess to up my also, or, or to also focus on incrementalism, right? There's no, you, yeah. you immediately lose a lot of the value of incrementalism if you've got this 
execution plan projected out 18 months that you just, and, and back to your point about the team, Darko, like the team stops using their heads too, mm-hmm. about like, I could work on this or I could work on this. Which one's more valuable based on the vision Darko put forward? Or just look at the roadmap and do what the roadmap says. It's like that's yeah. it's a fail. It like it's a fail across the board. And you you said something really powerful, by the way, about that that spoke to the organizational incentive that often exists. Like you're like you could be doing all of these things that are actually not value focused and be getting a bunch of great feedback from the organization. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I see I wanted to shift this to a question about junior product managers because there are a lot of them out there. It's actually like a relatively I think hot and somewhat new field mm-hmm. of expertise. And and I feel like weirdly again this is my perception I perceive that the gap between highly effective product leads and mediocre or below average product leads is like that that variance is very wide. Yeah. Like I would say it's actually less wide than it is like project managers mm-hmm. or something. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I feel for juniors on, people who are just getting started in this career path is because those organizational incentives are all telling them a story about what good product management looks like it takes a very special person to just like actually look at the whole system and be like, wait a second, <laughs> this, this doesn't seem right. I thought we were all here to like make effective business decisions and satisfy our customers. So uh, what's your advice to like juniors that may feel like they're getting sucked into those structures and like how, how do they grow into being really good product leads and not fall into those traps? I know that's a big question, but I'm curious yeah. like, what comes up for no. you. Okay, so so let me, if I could just pause that one, because I, I think we have an opportunity to provide an antidote to this poor um, behavioral pattern that we just outlined. Yeah. So yeah. I think the antidote to it that I've found is that you need to ground yourself in the vision and you also have to come up with business metrics that determine if you guys are doing well or not. Because I think the reason people are nervous about not having an 18-month roadmap is if you think about yourself from like a perspective of a team member, not having that, it's like somebody saying, we don't have the security here. Like, if we only see a month out, that means we can get cut in a month, right? Like, they perceive mm. the fog of war as being like, you know, that's the termination date, you know? And so it's like, I think you have to be careful that that false sense of security is not done that way, but rather you should instill security by having metrics that are objectively measurable, that you can say our business is doing well. There's no reason for anybody to fear. The fact that we don't know what we need to do in a month from now is no cause for alarm about like your job, you know, mm. your skill set. Like we will always find stuff to do. Because I found initially like if you want to wreck somebody's day, like you know, that's, that's stuck in this paradigm is like, just ask them to take a day and work on whatever they want. And like, you think that everybody would like celebrate that. Yeah, okay. Finally, I'm so excited. I have all this tech that to clean up. I have all these like projects I wanted to do. And it's like, the answer is no, like they're terrified that they're going to get laid off tomorrow. If you do that. Cause it's mm-hmm. like, why aren't you engaging me? Why aren't you committing me? Like, I want you to commit me for 18 months so that mm-hmm. I feel safe. Um, so I think you have to pivot that and like instill safety and, and comfort in the business metrics. And many times the business metrics are not good. They're not indicating yeah. success. 
Interesting. And, and so executives are like, don't show that to them. Like that's like, that's going to scare them even more. You know, it's like that we're burning a ton of money. That's going to scare the crap out of them. So you have to be like real. And then it's the Delta, the change, the, the direction that those business metrics are moving that you can start to build confidence and be like, Hey guys, we've improved so much in the last month. Every month we have more users. Every month we got more revenue. Every month we got more happiness coming in from customers. That's what we're after. And you also have to like get your executives to do their job and step in and motivate the team and, and assure them that like this is an important investment for the company. Yes, our revenue is underwater right now, but don't worry about that. We're looking at this for, you know, three years from now, right? So like then they, you take that stress level down. Going to your question about um, junior PMs. So here's what I've noticed junior PMs mess up on always like almost always, they don't express what they want to work on. Like they sit there and they say, I hope my boss picks a great project for me. And like, I hope I get to own something important, right? And then they just wait for somebody to be like, okay, you're going to own this. And it's like, that's not how you gain the experience you want. Like, which, like the ideal thing for a junior PM would be, something extremely important for the business and something extremely small, like a very small area of ownership. People have this idea that it's like, oh, if I own a larger portion of the product, that makes me more important or that's going to give me more opportunity to succeed. And it's like, no, like you want to own something very, very small, but very, very important. Um, and because it's just, it's so much easier to execute on something small than it is to execute on something large. Um, mm -hmm. and, and if somebody else is assigning something to you, like, I mean, I hate to, hate to demoralize people, but it's like, you're getting like the third, fourth, fifth picks because all the cutting product managers have already picked what they want to work on. And so mm -hmm. the fact that you haven't picked what you're going to work on, the fact that it's showed up to you chances are it's already been like overlooked by like four other people who had the opportunity to take that project up. So now what do you do if you're in that situation? Well, you execute as best as you can and you treat your project, even if it's not the most important thing, just treat it as if it's the most important thing. Like there's been many times in my career where like I owned something that was like written off as like a Hail Mary, a side project, not that important. But it's like, I took that thing to light and I said like, man, I'm just, I'm going to execute the hell out of this thing. And I'm going to come back and present this in front of the company. And I'm going to present the business metrics and the results and the growth and the adoption. And it's like, like, for example, at MuleSoft, one of my projects, which I can't go into the details of it, but it's like, it was like a peripheral side thing. Like almost like, you know, he does something with it. Great. If not, we know who he is and we're, you know, no impact to <laughs> our business. And it's like, and I was like, man, I just like crushed that thing. And immediately all the like directors were like, wow, I want that guy on my team. So like immediately you pivot from like, you know, worst, lowest project on the list to like, you know, one of the top projects on the list. And Darko, like, one of the things I want to call out there that you've talked to me about in the past too, is you've always made it clear that one of the benefits of those kinds of projects is that you're way less likely to run into external meddling. Like if everyone's mm -hmm. wrote it off and just like, oh man, that thing's on fire. 
I don't know who could fix that, but like it's a dumpster fire. All the like VPs are trying to get that out of their personal pie charts. Like, <laughs> and if you get over there and you crush it, like, like, or you go over there and you're passionate about it, you demonstrate passion, you're likely to have more political flexibility, more organizational flexibility to, to manifest your vision mm-hmm. for that product without, because everybody will just be surprised if it works out at all. They're not going to be meddling. Now, I've also seen you turn those projects around and then all of a sudden everyone comes in and wants to meddle. But like, that's something to consider too, right? Is like, how much meddling are you comfortable with? Like, if you're like a zero meddling kind of product manager, it might actually not be the worst thing in the world to take the, uh, the overlooked uh, yeah. project, you know? Take the overlooked project as small as possible. Um, and, and also like consider that some projects are only net additive, meaning like if you fail, nothing happens. If you succeed, good things happen. Like that's a great mm-hmm. spot as a junior product manager to be in. Cause what you don't want is a project that if you fail, bad things happen. Cause like, you know, at that early part of your career, it may be your fault. It may not be your fault, but if it fails, like it can damage you like seriously. And now whatever your next role you're going to, it's like, Oh, Tell me about what you're working on. How's that going? Right. And so you either have to like twist it into like, it's going great. Or you just have to be like, it's falling apart big time. And then, then people are like, Ooh, I don't know if I want this guy on the team, you know? Mm-hmm. So line up those successes and, and just crush them. Um, so yeah, pick your own project, make sure it's net additive, ideally overlooked, ideally small. And, uh, you know, and if, if, if you are already, so, so sorry, I would say if you're already committed to something, find the extra capacity to take on an extra bonus project and do it anyways. And, and that bonus project might actually do you more than whatever you're working on currently. And if you feel like you don't have time for that bonus project, then you're screwing up your day job. So then first figure out how to make time for that project and then do it. There's a, uh, a, a meta point I want to make. Um, as you've described this, Darko, you are very much describing a product manager's first job is to product manage their own life and career. Um, and because it's fascinating. The question was like, what did junior product manager people are like, oh, they don't like spend enough time talking. You're like, have you set yourself up to succeed along the career that you're in? Forget all the product management tools and all that stuff for now. Um, and it, it's also, and this is something that the the uh, the listeners don't know. When you hopped on this call with us before we started, you asked us a couple questions. And there's an interesting thing about how product management permeates your existence. Uh, it was like, who's your audience, right? What are you trying to do? Are you trying to teach? Are you trying to entertain? What's the balance? <laughs> All these things. You're as you're walking through this. There's this idea of like these product management thought processes, audience focus, what's the intention, understand the vision, you're also applying that to your own life. Even that first point you made about like, don't get wrapped up in your title, don't get wrapped up in like all the other cool products that other companies might be making. And at first I was like, yeah, that makes a ton of sense. But I was applying it to the organization or the team. And you very much made the statement that that was actually, no, that's you. That's you. That's your time. Mm-hmm. Where are you investing time? You have so many hours in a day. How are you spending them? 
And now this again coming through here, first thing you should do as a junior product manager and the thing that you don't screw up is you don't ask for the project or the product that's most likely to cause you to be successful. Mm -hmm. And and also least likely, and this one is big too. This is, I, I feel like I learned something from this conversation about juniors. I did not have this perspective when I was a junior. Mm -hmm. Set yourself up thoughtfully because again, not only do you increase your chances of success, but back to what we were talking about earlier about falling into traps, you actually reduce your chances that you're going to fall into those traps. Because why do we fall into those traps so often? Well, because we often find ourselves in situations where our back's up against the wall and we have no choice, right? Like things aren't going well. I've been on this thing for three months. I thought I was being a hero when my manager was like, Aaron, can you do this? Can you take this? Can you product lead this ridiculously huge project that's super important that the entire company has eyes on that's way outside your capability? <laughs> like, and I wanted to be the hero. So I said, yes. And then three months forward, now my back is up against a wall. You know, maybe, just maybe, the <laughs> the only way out for me is to make the uh the faux roadmap <laughs> or, or, or to tell a, a fantastical story of success and happiness and love to the VP during the next v quarterly meeting, like all of a sudden, all the bad stuff, all the stuff, the dirty stuff that I never thought I would get into becomes like a viable option now because my career is on the line and I don't want to be the guy that just bombed this project. Right. And so yeah. <laughs> that was a big light bulb for me, actually, Darko, as you were just going over this, I'm like, wow, you can actually by focusing up upstream on which projects you choose and how you think about your role, you can actually really set yourself up to not just be more successful in your career, but also to make sure that you can like retain your own integrity. Mm -hmm. Like that's really, it's a really cool idea. <laughs> Is Darko literally takes the opposite <laughs> approach to selecting projects from Aaron and I, Aaron and I are like, what's the <laughs> biggest, hardest, most complicated, most like, and that someone's willing to like, what's the grenade that you're willing that, the biggest yeah. grenade I can possibly be tossed upon. Yeah. And if you don't toss me upon it, I am offended because I am worried you don't think I'm capable. And Darko's yeah. like, man, I'll let you guys dive on the grenades. I've got yeah. this little small I, I thing. A, it's yeah. super important and I can make it shine. I have, I I have a personal problem apparently, which is like if, if all of my stakeholders aren't pissed off at me for at least the first eight months <laughs> after I join a project, then clearly I haven't challenged myself enough. Well, there's, there's okay, so two things to add. To, to what you guys are saying, which I think might also be helpful. One, the idea that you have to succeed in what you've been assigned is also a fallacy. Mm -hmm. Like there's nothing wrong with killing the project you're on. And I've done that plenty mm -hmm. of times where somebody's like, hey, I'd like you to own Feature X. And again, I wish I could talk about the details, but I, I probably don't have permission. And so I, I get to Feature X and I meet with the engineers and it's like, you know, three engineers and we're like, okay, cool. like let's level, like, would you guys rather be working on something else? And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> like, go to the executives, like, like, hypothetically, if we were to release these engineers to help with your project, how would you feel about that? And they're like, oh yeah, great, more resources. I'm like, okay, great. So you might, you could support this too. Then. And then it's like, you go to the business and you're like, guys, wouldn't it make more sense to invest more in this other project that's like, already behind schedule. It's more critical to our success. Like, why are we investing mm -hmm. in this thing that I got assigned on? And they're like, yeah. And you're like, okay, mm -hmm. cool. So we all agree. Like, let's let these guys go. And it's like, 
Cool. And then you can go back to your boss and be like, all right, I'm done with that one. We decided it wasn't a top priority. Mm-hmm. We've reprioritized the energy somewhere else, more important. Uh, I was thinking, what if I started doing a little bit of research in this area, right? And it's like your boss is like, you have to like understand that your boss generally is not like available to care about your life the way you care about your life. Mm-hmm. Like generally they're just th- trying to stay afloat. So they'll be like, huh, interesting. Okay, well, yeah, I mean, that sounds great, man. Like, let's connect next week and talk about it again, you know? And so then you come next week and you're like, hey, this thing, I talked to four customers and they, they love this idea. Like, and you could have even done all that. Like, this is a tactic. You could do stuff way ahead and you could reveal it piece by piece, you know? So by the time you even say, can I go do research on this thing? You've already done the research, right? By the time the next meeting shows up, you already have four customers in it. It's like, holy shit, this guy started working on it a week ago and he's already got four customers interested in it. And then it's like, if you got the back relationships, you're like, hey man, I know this feature is important to you. I'm trying to get it into the roadmap. Would you mind doing me an email and just, or should do me a favor and just email my boss saying like, you guys would really appreciate this at X customer. He's like, yeah, no problem, man. And then it's like your boss now gets an email from like, a customer saying like, we really want this thing. Darko started researching two weeks ago. And it's like, so you, you reveal, you, you build up the capacitance and you release it at a controlled way where it builds momentum. And so then all of a sudden, when you come around and ask for, you know, one or two engineers to help you build the prototype, it's like, it's not crazy at all. And it's like, so, so you have, what I'm trying to say is like, don't think that just because you were assigned to something that that thing is important. Like most likely whoever was owning it before either abandoned it, quit, like became too busy and talked to his boss and said, I can't do this thing anymore. Like somebody ditched it and you picked it up. And it's like many times the right answer is just, let's just like wind it down and kill it and release the people. Like, cause it's probably some idea somebody came up with a while ago and just nobody's had them courage to, to, you know, rectify the fact that this thing sucks and shouldn't be done anyways. I love that you're expressing a nuance around how you relate to the thing you've been assigned. Because earlier you were like, hey, look, if you get assigned something, if you're stuck in that spot, treat it like it's the most important thing. Simultaneously, if it makes sense to kill it, kill it. And those two things, at the surface, they can appear contradictory. But the reality is that no, those are very much aligned. Um, And also, there's a way that you talk about building credibility and influence. And I think that's like there's, you know, Aaron and I say that like politics always exist. Um, there's good pol- politics and there's bad politics, right? But the influence game is always present. And uh, you can be like me when I'm early in my career and be like, no, I refuse to play. And really, the only person I'm hurting is myself and anybody that I could have helped by becoming more capable in the space of politics and influence earlier. Um, Because when I choose not to play, I choose not to be able to have the influence I could have. And what you're describing is in not in any unethical ways, but very much like developing influence and credibility and reputation. um, And, and through the understanding of the nuance of what should continue and what shouldn't and using real business metrics and, uh, letting engineers go do what they would like to do and getting executives on board. And and again, being somebody that people want to be relating to, 
Um, and I'll be honest, like sometimes I, I, I struggle with that just because and Aaron's given me this feedback a ton. I can take such a, like a sort of foundational principles type approach, which I think certainly actually has a lot of merit. Um, but sometimes it's like, Ben, you should be willing to bend a little bit. Like, yeah, it's I, not, I, it's not like this isn't actually a moral issue. You're stuck in like, no, we have to make sure everybody talks clearly to everybody else. And it's yeah. like, or, or you can deal with reality, make the best of it and move forward. And, you know, and, and that's not Aaron telling me like, go start lying or do immoral things. It's recognize that if you want to have a positive impact, um, sometimes you have to be willing to bend. Yeah, there's a, there's a bias we have in corporate America, I think, where um, sort of historically, I think we prefer direct forms of communication that the, the back to the email example, having the customer send the email, mm -hmm. you know, there is a part of me that knee jerks and goes, oh, that's manipulative. And it's like, no, it's not. Actually, all you did was ask him to express something he was already excited about. Yeah, there's nothing below board there at all. But like, this is a bias we have, I think, mm -hmm. um, in the space where we assume that everyone should just of their own accord do and say all the things that they mean and think all the time without being prompted. But if that were the case, we would not need leaders at all. Leaders are, this is something we've talked about a lot, Ben, but leaders by definition influence people. Mm -hmm. And so if you're a leader, you should influence people. And that, what's ironic is that could be just getting them to speak aloud something they already feel that's important. You know, so I, I actually, you know, I love uh, your segue there, Ben. To back to you, Darko. What are the things that you've learned about influence? Because this is another one of those areas where I, you've just been so deliberate about it. And I've learned a ton from you. I've, I, I kind of historically have defaulted more towards Ben's side of things where I think there was, there, there, I was wrapped up in my own identity crisis around like what's integrity and, you know, and what's above board and below board behavior. And I think one of the things I learned is that like, if I don't learn the skills to influence people, I'll never be an effective leader, period. Mm -hmm. it, it doesn't matter. No, that is a true statement. And so what does it mean to influence people in, in a positive and meaningful and value focused way? And again, I feel like you're extremely talented in that way. Like, what are the things that come up for you when you think about that and that you've learned over the years. Yeah, no, and a, a lot of this learning has come from mistakes. So I'd say at first, I, let's say there would be like a meeting to decide on investments, okay? And I would say, okay, I'm gonna prepare and I'm gonna show up at that meeting and I'm gonna unveil my idea right then and there. And it's like, you get there and you like throw it in and it's like, you know, people are like, it, people are just kind of like, Maybe they don't like it. Maybe it doesn't feel fleshed out. Like all I know is like it didn't work, right? For a variety of reasons. And we can go into those, but I, I think that's irrelevant. So then I said to myself, well, what the hell? Like, why, why can't, like, wasn't this supposed to be the meeting where we like bring our top ideas? And the answer is no, like that's not it at all. Like all the ideas have already been like solidified. It's just, you weren't even part of the process. This is the, this is the meeting where we make the remainder of the people who didn't participate in it feel like they participated in it. And so I was like, okay. So then I was like, so then I evolved to say, okay, well, I gotta like get my shit together ahead of time and have like 
supporters at that meeting, you know, and it's like, I can't be the only one. So, so at that point, or even like if there would be something conflicting, I'd be like, okay, I'll get my gang together. I'll like prime them all. I think priming is the key word here. I'll prime them all. They're going to know what's going to go down and we're just going to do it. And then it's like, I realized that the people that I didn't involve that might be on the opposite side of that argument, they felt like super ambushed because it's like, they're not stupid. Mm -hmm. Clearly they get that. Like you guys coordinated when you just show up and are all on the same page already. And it's like, no. So like, so then I realized I was burning bridges with people that for some reason in my mind, I had modeled as like the opponents that I had mm -hmm. to defeat. And mm -hmm. it was, it's like, a, that's like a, not a great way to go about it. Cause it's like, mm -hmm. at the end of the day, we're a company, we're a team. Like we might have factions, but we have to understand we're, we're the same company and we all either win or lose together. So those mm -hmm. factions fighting doesn't do anyone any good. So then I've evolved to actually understand that it's like, Hey, you've got to prime your opposition to. You got to be like, hey, man, I just going to I wanted to let you know that at this meeting, I'm planning on arguing that this feature is more important than the thing you're working on. I wanted to hear your opinions on it and get your perspective to make sure a, I'm not wrong about that. And at the end of it, even if you still think that you disagree and even if the person's upset with you about it, it's like you gave them a fair warning, a fair advance that like you're going to make a move. And that like, you know, something's gonna happen. And more often than not, like what happens is in those kinds of conversations, you start to be able to strike compromises. You start to be like, okay, like we'll put this ahead, but we'll scope it down to make sure that we can still, you know, have enough time for this thing, or we'll cap it at three months. So, you know, worst case scenario, your project's gonna be delayed by three months. Or, you know, it's like, so it's like when they come there, they already feel included and it's like, it becomes like a, even if it's quote unquote a loss in their mind for whatever reason, because maybe they disagree with you, it's not a surprise. It's not, it, they don't feel ambushed. They don't feel like you were hostile. They don't like, it's just like, you know, and they also might see that, Hey, on their, on the merits of this issue, they didn't get their way. Right. But at least they felt included and they didn't feel like you're their enemy. You know, mm -hmm. um, and then you also like you got to prime the executives. Many times I do that, too. I'm like, hey, there's going to be a, a situation where these two are this argument's going to come to light. We're going to need somebody to make a decision. I want you to be like ready, like talk to the other person. Here's my side of the argument. And many times you don't get what you want. Right. And it's like but the point is that though, that's like to your point, Ben, that that's good politics where it's like yeah. you're having that, you know, discourse, but you're not doing it in a hostile way mm -hmm. and you're not always going to get your way and they're not going to get their way, but it's like, at least you, you feel the process was fair in how you came to that conclusion. I, I love what you said too, about we're all in the same company and it's okay. Like there's going to be maybe factions with have different opinions about things, but when you get to the place where there are opponents and I've been, I've been in that, situation where it's like, ah, I'm on one side of this and they are on the other side and we are enemies. Um, and, uh, something I, I, I said the other day is anytime you get into a war, you have to recognize that wars are inherently destructive and usually for everybody. Um, and, and that idea instead of like, okay, they think differently than me. They're in a different faction perhaps, but that doesn't mean that their opinion is any less worth listening to. 
In fact, perhaps it's more because by, very, by the very nature that they see the world differently means they're most likely to bring me information I don't already have. And I will include them. It doesn't mean I have to accept everything they say. It doesn't mean that if they're like, no, you shouldn't do that, I have to listen to them. Um, it, but I can include them. And, and, I, and then it, it does, it, it is also, there's strength to some extent in the vulnerability ironically, that is part of that, or paradoxically, perhaps, that is part of that. Because by going out and sort of laying your hand out to some extent, you make yourself vulnerable. They can start conniving if they want to and mm -hmm. begin like, well, I'm going to go play the negative politics game against you. Mm -hmm. But if you're playing the open, the strength of like, I'm willing to show some of my hand and get your thoughts on this, I guess you can go play the negative game. But uh, probably... I will, I will win the reputation game at the end of this because everybody understood what I was trying to do and I, I kept it reasonable. I kept it um, open as far as I, I needed to be. Um, and I never treated you like you were an enemy to defeat. Yeah. Um, maybe just somebody who I disagreed with. There's, there's also a, a personal growth and a, and a checks and balances thing that comes into the connection between those two ideas, the, the idea one being, how do you expand and grow in your ability to influence? And then the second being not falling into the trap uh, of viewing it as opposing factions where one faction needs to win and the other faction needs to lose, but that you have to build the skills to incorporate and engage with everybody. One of the things I think that can happen is and I've actually seen leaders fall into this trap. And interestingly, this conversation has given me more empathy for them. Because when I see somebody who wields wanton influence in a below board way or in a way that is like very selfish, mm -hmm. and I see the destruction that that can wreak at organizations, I off, it's easy place for me to go to be like, that person's bad. That person has bad intentions. That person's trying to get everybody to do what they want and their motivations are wrong. And, and I think what struck me about this conversation is perhaps where they went wrong is they never actually learned the value of engaging the opposition, not just to include them, but also to challenge their own biases, like you said, and make sure that they're not wrong. Like maybe there's a way they can grow because the more your influence grows, the more destruction you can create if you are wrong and you mm -hmm. wield influence. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a really interesting takeaway for me is like, as your influence grows as a leader, you got to make sure to create those checks and balances actively so that you don't go off the rails because the more your influence is and the more senior senior you are, I mean, I mean, we've all seen it. Like one really senior leader who wields influence destructively in that way can destroy swaths of the organization. It's like crazy because their decisions hold so much weight and their influence holds so much weight. So mm. yeah, that's, that's really interesting stuff. Yeah. yeah. And, and, um, the other thing I was just going to add to touch on what you just said, Aaron, about the senior leader, um, many times I think people are afraid of challenging like something wrong. Um, and I think they're afraid of challenging something wrong because they're afraid of, they imagine these repercussions of it. And it's like, you, you don't have to be hostile. Just some advice for people. You don't have to be hostile to challenge things. You could just be honest 
and honestly will melt like this bad behavior rather quickly um, because mm. the more they double down, the more they triple down, the more people are going to be like, wait a second, this makes no sense. And it's like their credibility can tank in a course of days if they're you know dumb about it. So, mm. but you have to be willing to like deal with the repercussions, right? And so mm-hmm. here are things that could happen. You could be let go. But then ask yourself, why waste time at a place where, you know, this issue was there? Now, I understand financially, maybe you need to save up some money to be able to afford that. So do that and then be ready to, you know, deal with the repercussions. Mm. They could chew you out. Like I've been chewed out. I've had people like pull me into a room and just start screaming at me. And it's like at the end of it, it's like, okay, like, are you done screaming? It's like, okay, cool. Well, appreciate it, man. <laughs> and it's like, they like. There's nothing they can do. Like, what like what are they gonna hit you? Like, what are they gonna like destroy your career? Like, what do you like? Don't be afraid of doing what's right because it's like by doing what's right, chances are you're gonna accelerate your development drastically. Because mm. think of think of the no matter how good you are, if you're in a corrupt system, it's not gonna pan out to anything. So it's like you, you're literally just wasting your time. Uh, so it's like if you can either quit or you can challenge the authority and then quit right? or fire or whatever, or you could change the system. And it's like, all of those are possible. Um, so, so the other thing to consider is if you get stuck fighting with somebody like Ben was describing, where it's like, you're having an adversarial combat, chances are that your solution is not that much better. And it could even be worse. What you want to be looking for is what's that solution that is, by far more impactful such that simply the nature of presenting it makes people like take a moment and be like, wait a second. Yes. Like that's what we're after. That's what we need. And so it's like, you know, I would really encourage everybody to challenge yourself that it's like, when you think you figured it out and you're just forcing it, ask yourself, what would make this 10 times even more impactful? And that's mm. the beauty of information and that's the beauty of technology is that like whatever, however good you think your proposal is, I guarantee you there's a proposal 10 times better out there waiting to be discovered. Um, or or I, I guarantee you there's a way to modify your proposal to make it 10 times more impactful. Um, and and that's, that's what you're after. And so many times it's like, I'll even seed ground because it's like, okay, if we're arguing over is feature A or feature B more important? And this argument is dragging out. They're probably both right there, right? Like one is going to lose quickly if one is substantially better than the other. And so there's something else to be said about like, does it really matter? Like what, which one gets picked? Does it really matter what order they're done in? If they're so equivalent that like we can debate them for, you know, a long time. There's, mm-hmm. And I think that by seeding ground, by many, like many times I just seed ground, like I've done this before where it's like, we're, we're ta- stack riding our projects and not am I make it in the top 10, right? And it's like, great. So now we have a plan. But now what do I have? I have the luxury to ask myself, what is really number one, right? And again, it goes back to that fear of like, if you're not tied up with work, People have this idea that, okay, well, you know, Darko, none of yours made it. We appreciate the time you spent with us. Um, we don't need you anymore, right? Like, that's not how it goes. How it goes is that guy 
is slammed with a bunch of work because his four of his things made it into the top 10. And you are now given a degree of liberty that people only dream of to like, go think about like what's really more important or how can mm-hmm. any of those 10 things be improved to be even more impactful. So don't, don't get stuck fighting for crumbs, I guess is the kind of the, the takeaway there. Mm-hmm. Just let seed it, let it go. If, if it's so close, it's inconsequential. Uh, I feel like that's such a great place for us to, to wrap things up. Um, I no doubt there are many more things we could uh, talk about over the next couple yeah. hours, but I feel like that's a great cherry on top there. So yeah. um, thanks for everybody for joining us. Um, Darko, thank you for joining us. Like, yeah, uh, I, very I, insightful. Yeah. I had a feeling this was going to be awesome. I didn't know exactly what to expect. And, uh, you know, just, you know, for myself personally, it exceeded my expectations. I just really appreciate you giving the time for this. It was a very, I, I feel like I'm going to be reflecting on this for a couple of days. So thank you for joining us. Great. It was great seeing you both of you. Uh, thanks for having me on. Yeah. Okay. And uh, yeah, we'll see you all next time uh, on the next episode of Valarin Perspective. Have a good one. This has been the Valarin Perspective. Thank you for listening. Please send us your thoughts at perspectives at valarinconsulting.com. V-A-L-A-R-I-N consulting.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Valarin Inc.